The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thank you very much, and welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report, live from Denver today at the Schwab Impact event. More than 4,500 investment advisors are meeting today, and front and center for them, just like you, uh, front and center for all of you, for us, the Fed, what it will do, what it will say later today, what all of it will mean to your money in the months ahead. We discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee, of course. And joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, also with us, our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Let's take a look at the markets. Uh, Got to check on what we're doing a couple hours before we get that Fed decision. We've been largely in the red for the most, uh, most of the session so far. Dow's down about 60, uh, NASDAQ's down about 1%, and of course we're watching yields. 10-year note at 4.04. Uh, we'll watch that very closely today, obviously. We're also going to dive into a bunch of moves that Joe T has made today, uh, not only personally, but as part of the rebalancing of his Joe T ETF. And we're going to get to all of that throughout the course of the show today. Uh, I do want to begin, though, Jim, with the question of the day. Is the Fed going to extend the rally in stocks, or is the Fed going to end it? Scott, I just don't see how Chairman Powell in the press conference is going to say anything other than what he's been on message with for several months, which is that inflation is still too high. They've just entered the restrictive territory and they've got further to go. You know, as well as anyone, that I wish they would throw us some mercy, but I just the, the data isn't there. Uh, neither in the recent inflation reports nor in the inflation projections. The Cleveland Fed does a pretty good job on their website of predicting inflation, and it's just the stated numbers aren't there. But I will say one thing. If there is a reason for mercy, it's only because they should be looking through the CPI and PPI. There are clear discrepancies in things like health insurance costs, rent, uh, important things like that, that the CPI is clearly measuring differently than what boots on the ground are measuring. But all this together, uh, I'm not holding out a lot of hope today. Yeah, you know, Leesman, um, hope and a prayer ain't going to get you much uh, in the markets. I think we've learned uh, that. And, you know, the main risk, I think, going into today is that the markets, investors have sort of wrapped themselves around the idea that you're going to get some kind of a wink and a nod from the Fed chair that, you know, the next rate hike in December is going to be smaller than it is today and that it may, in fact, uh, be it. The problem is the most recent data would suggest that the Fed cannot stop anytime soon, can it? Yeah, I think you went a little too far with that, Scott. I think the first part I could agree with, which is maybe there is a wink and a nod that we're done with 75s. I, I, maybe I liken this to how a, uh, a jet takes off from an aircraft carrier, which is kind of straight up, and that's what we've been doing. Um, uh, but then after it get, clears the, 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 the uh, tarmac there, it can maybe level off its 
uh, rate of, of incline. I think that may be where the Fed is going. I think it's cleared the tarmac. It's gotten into what you'd call restrictive territory. So we could get a sense from Powell today that, indeed, we don't have to do 75s. But do not mistake that, Scott, for a sense from Powell that they're done raising rates, because I think by a long shot they are not. Um, and I think that's not where the market is priced. If you take a very quick look at where the, the futures market are priced, we're, we're up today. And it's because of what you just said, Scott, because of the idea that uh, we've had some strong job market data, even some strong retail data. My buddy LeBeau has been reporting on strong car sales data. That, by the way, could be a positive for inflation. But look, we're back over 5% on that peak rate. So don't mistake the idea that we're, um, what's the word, like uh, decreasing the rate of incline from the idea that we have reached cruising altitude. And one more very quick point, which is the idea that at least our CNBC Fed survey sees the Fed reaching that peak rate and cruising there for up to 10 months. I think there's some play in that, but don't think the Fed's going to reverse course right away. This is not a trip from no, Washington to New York. Because to use your, you know, your analogy here, I mean, we're, we're still climbing, right, as we've taken off. Yeah. Right. Um, we're just, right. we pulled the thrusters back a little bit to ease the speed. I mean, it's Maybe. what yeah. Steve Timoros lays out today in the, in the Wall Street Journal uh, about the three stages of tightening, raising rates rapidly to catch up. That's where we've been, and that's where yeah. we're going to be again today yeah. with after, 75 after basis I, points. Point. Yeah. yeah, after I laid it out the last three days, but that's okay. Nick's got it today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of, of, of course, Steve. But you, the, the point is, we're still early in the process. Right, Steve, that you, you raise them rapidly and then you well, go more slowly and the market has to get its arms around that and then you got to let them stay for a while. That's your sort of leveling off to cruising altitude. It doesn't mean you go into a descent anytime soon. Well, but let's remember, Scott, the, the market itself has kind of changed its definition of what relief means here or what a pivot means here. The first thing the market thought a pivot was the idea that they would cut rates. We, we talked about that a lot on this show, Scott, that the market had the, had, had the Fed reversing course, that sort of trip to Washington where you take off and then you start descending right away. That was the first thing. Then the market said, oh, wait a second, no. What the Fed's gonna do is stop hiking, go into a pause mode. Well, we know that's not the case, at least that's not what's priced in. And now the market has taken pivot or the, the sense of some relief from the idea that we get down from 75s to 50s kind of a success for Powell in the sense that he's gotten the market at least to offer those first two uh, uh, possibilities. So, you know, Steph, we're, we're up a lot, right, from the mid-October low. Dow's up 13.5%, S&P's up 10 small caps have done quite well, up 11.5%, and even the NASDAQ with those bad tech earnings that we got a week and a half ago or so, uh, the NASDAQ's up 7%. So do they extend or do they end that move in stocks today? I don't think it's going to be the Fed that extends uh, the rally. It's going to be the fact that even though we've had double-digit increases off the lows, the S&P 500 is still down 19% on the year. There's a lot of negativity. Sentiment is really, really awful at this point in time. And seasonally, this is the strong period of time for markets, for equity markets, and uh, it, especially after a midterm, right? So um, I think that those um, reasons are reasons that we're going to continue, we could continue the rally. In addition, earnings were not nearly as bad. Um, but uh, to your point, um, you know, with, with Steve um, and, and Jim and yourself, this 75 to 50 is, is not a pivot, 
right? I mean, they've already done so much. The velocity of the move that they have made this year is, has been incredible. And what concerns me, and it has concerned me for a while, is we just don't know the impact. We know we're going to slow in 2023. How much do we slow? Do we go into a recession? Is it deep? Is it mild? No one knows at this point. But again, back to where I started, the market is, is discounting a lot of bad news. It's a forward-looking indicator. And so we're discounting a lot mm -hmm. of bad news. And I know we have to get through an earnings downgrade cycle, probably in sometime in 2023. I do think some stocks, a lot of stocks, are down much more than 20% year to date. Some are down 40 and 50 and 70% year to date. And so again, I think there are opportunities. And if you're on the right side of the markets in terms of sectors which have which have worked year to date, it's been value, right? It's been a, sh a short duration plays. It has not been growth or long duration plays. And that's really where I have been focused on all year long. And I will continue to be so even if we rally into the end of the year, my playbook does not change. So, Joe, I mentioned at the top of the program, we're going to get to a number of moves, both personally and through the rebalance of the Joe T. And I don't want to do that quite yet. I want to stay on this this theme um, because 75 down to 50 is a pivot. It's just not the, the capital P pivot. It's not the, the big pivot that, you know, some have tried to wrap their arms around. Barclays today says of the overblown pivot narrative. Those are their words. Uh, rate cuts have been a precondition for equities to start a new bull market in the past. We're not there yet. Lloyd Blankfein tweets today, quote, I imagine Jay Powell and the rest of the Fed governors are right now sitting with a thesaurus trying to find the word that means pause or not pause, depending on who's listening. Um, what is the message you think going to be today? And more importantly, Joe, how is it going to be received by the market? I think I think we're making uh I think a lot of what I read is more complicated than it needs to be. I think it's pretty simple, and I think Steph nails it. But markets in October are rallying, getting ahead of a very strong historical period uh, seasonally. So I don't know if it's really about the Federal Reserve. I think as it relates today, the question becomes, does the Federal Reserve, which is clearly putting risk assets through a stress test, does it allow risk assets to catch its breath? continues the stress test, but can you catch your breath? And the reason why I think they're going to do that is the part of the yield curve that they pay respect to, which is a three-month to a 10-year, you have now a multi-day period of sustained inversion. And during the period in which uh, the last meeting occurred, there was a little bit of a deterioration in the liquidity conditions in the Treasury market, in the taxable fixed income market, I think the Federal Reserve acknowledges those two things, give them, gives the market what it expects. I don't know if that's a catalyst for a significant rally, but I will tell you I'm pretty confident that if it doesn't give the market what it expects, the market is going to go lower. Steve, I mean, it, it does speak sort of to this dance that the Fed now has to do, right? He knows, he, Powell, he knows that the three-month to 10-year has been inverted for more than a week. He knows that's a precursor often to a, a recession. He knows the countdown clock is ticking. Uh, so he, he has to act accordingly. He doesn't want to crash the economy. Uh, he may be content with simply, you know, slamming, slamming the brakes on for a little bit, but he doesn't want to crash the thing. He doesn't want to crash it, Scott, but I think he would. And I think that 
it's probably mm. worth thinking about that. I, I, I think Powell is willing to accept some form of negative growth. He's already said that he's willing to accept a higher unemployment rate. He feels, and I think the committee feels, that there is an absolute imperative to focus on the one side of the mandate, which is the inflation side of the mandate, because unemployment is so low right now at three and a half percent, because job openings just went up and remained high, I think they feel like that other part of the mandate or the second mandate, which is not second, it's co-equal, uh, has been fulfilled and they are free at this point or they feel like it's their mandate to focus on just that one mandate. And if it means contracting the economy, I believe they have they feel they have to do that. And and there are many out there, Scott, who feel that there's no other way to bring inflation under control than an actual contraction in the economy that would create the slack needed to bring inflation down. It's a hugely debatable prospect, I'll grant you that, because of all the other factors that may be creating inflation right now. But I don't think anybody on this uh, committee here should lose sight of what the committee, the one that they care about, is saying, which is they're willing to allow the economy to contract to bring inflation under control. Yeah, and, and Jim Labenthal, I mean, that would be most upsetting to your entire thesis of this market. Um, and I, I think it's pretty, you know, incredible to hear Steve uh, suggest to my question, you know, I don't think he wants to crash the economy, uh, but I think he might be willing to do it if that's what it takes. Your, your entire market view is predicated on the fact that that doesn't happen. Right, you, you can't be buying the value stocks today if you think that he'd be willing to crash the economy. You can't have your price target or your earnings projections in place if you think he's willing to crash the economy. None of it works under that scenario. Yeah, that was a beautiful, eloquent, and long question to which I can only say I agree, Scott. Um, you know, the, the thesis is predicated on we're coming close to the end of the rate hike cycle, meaning maybe it's, maybe it's 75 again in December, but then you're really looking at possibly a pause there. The bottom line is, and I think Steve will agree with this, you need to see inflation come down. And the other bottom line is they're paying attention to the CPI. So I can talk all I want to about what rents are actually doing in the market. I can talk about gasoline futures. None of that matters if it doesn't show up in the CPI. Now, we do have two looks at that CPI between now and the December meeting. And the December meeting is where the rubber meets the road as far as what they'll telegraph goes on in 2023. You know, I guess the next and most obvious follow-up from these many discussions, Jim, that we've had about this issue is then why not adjust your own outlook for the market and parts of the market that you think will work best if you have admitted from the top of the program that inflation is not going in the right direction. Steve has laid out very eloquently and crystal clear what the objective is the Fed, of the Fed and what they might be willing to sacrifice to meet their goal. Why hasn't that forced you to reframe your own view uh, of the market? Another eloquent question, and there's a very simple answer to it, really two parts to it. One is we don't know what's actually going to happen with inflation. The second is, Scott, what we're really talking about here is pushing out a timeline. This is not something where the market goes, the economy goes into recession, the market goes into further bear market and stays there. That's not how the world works. 
This is something that pushes the recovery out further to the right than where I currently think it is. But this is not a question of whether the recovery will still occur. You, you know that I live where companies are and on what they're individually saying. And I could look at anything. I mean, I could look at CVS rating, raising guidance. I could look at what Boeing is saying about airplane demand. And that demand, or the semiconductor plants that are being built, that demand may push to the right a little bit, but it's not going away. Same with cars, same with a lot of things. We're talking about a moment in time, and the question is how long does that moment in time last? So, Joe and Steph, um, let's do Steph hey, first, hey, because Scott. you have one move that I want to get. Yeah, Steve, go ahead. I just very quickly follow up. I mean, just not leave uh, Jim out there on a limb hanging by himself there. Um, a, a, a recession is not the Fed's base case. They feel like they can get out of this and do this with a soft landing. Our CNBC Fed survey is full of comments that that well, window for the soft landing is getting narrower and smaller. But there is still a possibility that that can happen. So uh, Jim is not is not full of crazy talk there. It, it is possible that it happens. It's not the base case of a lot of people on the street because recession is built in. But it, it's not the Fed's base case if there is a recession. I think that that, that ought to be said. No, I, all right. And I'm glad you did say it. Uh, it's important to say that, Steve. Thank you for doing that. Uh, and thanks for joining us, as always. It's Steve Leisman on what is uh, expected to be a big day, of course, not only for the Fed, but the markets. We'll see you again soon, Steve. Thank you, as always. Uh, and, right, and again, thanks, let's Steve. talk about some of these moves. Steph, you, you have one, uh, so I want to get it out of the way. You added to Wells. Can you tell me why you did that? Yeah, it's now my largest uh, financial services position by far. Um, so they, had a, they, they, they have the most exposure and leverage to higher rates or lower rates, by the way. For every 50 basis point Fed fund move, that's about 7% to net interest income and 16% to earnings growth. So higher rates are their friend for now. Um, they also uh, demonstrated that, uh, their, that leverage in the quarter. They had a very strong net interest income quarter, net interest margin, and they raised guidance as well. They also saw better than expected loan growth, believe it or not. That did not get a lot of highlights. And they've done a really good job in terms of cutting costs. We've known kind of all of these, these, uh, these points, but the, the thing that made me add to it was it looks like in the, in the 10Q, it looks like they're making progress with the regulators on the consent order. Uh, and that could lead to um, the, that's the CFPB regulator. It could lead to the OCC regulators then also uh, negotiating with the, the company um, on a resolution. And I think the asset cap has been the thing that has really been the overhang on this stock, the negative overhang. And so with the stock trading at 1.1 times book, um, I, I just think it's very attractive. And if you would get an, an, an announcement on the asset cap, stock lifts easily 10%. Okay. All right, Joe, uh, let's get this going here because you have a number of moves both personally and um, with the Joe T ETF. Number one, uh, you sold Alphabet personally. We could talk about it in a relation, it's also the Joe T, but you sold it personally along with AMD, uh, NVIDIA. I'm kind of surprised to hear that you sold NVIDIA. Uh, you sold Blackstone, you sold Datadog, you sold Northrop. All of these are personal sales. You want to take me through that? I think our viewers might be surprised to hear about these moves. Okay, let's start uh, with AMD and NVIDIA. We could kind of position those together, Scott. At a certain point, you have to have a risk mitigation, a risk management strategy that, that takes over whatever your fundamental view might be of a stock. So enough is enough with AMD. 
um, down 28%, having liquidated it. I bought NVIDIA back on July 5th at 148. The loss there is a little bit smaller. But in each one of these semi-stocks, the beta is well above two. My risk assumption is well beyond what I want to incur at this point. And you're also exposed to significant tax loss selling, which is in the process of unfolding. So overall, I have a view of the semis in which I think the bad news is priced in. But I wanted to pivot away from that and seek a more defensive lower beta exposure. Uh, Alphabet, that's a stock that I have owned since September of 2019. I am ringing the register here. A lot of the reasoning behind Alphabet was based upon the increase in the buyback strategy. And now, ultimately, we're beginning to see a deceleration. I know Steph has talked about this, and Steph did a great job getting ahead of it. But you're seeing the ad spending and the deceleration in the sales growth. That's a reason to move away from it. Uh, Datadog, that's just a a 20% loser in which I took a small step towards that hyper-growth strategy. And this is just not the environment for it. We are not ready for that step uh, to move forward. Two other names that I liquidated. Blackstone, not a great quarter. 16% revenue uh, down year on year in the prior quarter. That's basically a wash. And then you might be surprised to know that I did liquidate Northrop Grumman. I have a very strong profit on that, somewhere close to about 50%. There's strong positive momentum there. But in the last quarter, the guidance was kind of weak. The earnings missed a little bit. There was a lot of commentary about the concern about the supply chain. So you had the fundamental contribution that really wasn't concurrent with the strong momentum to move to the sidelines. Now, you you said that you thought most of the damage in semis uh, was in, that maybe they've come close to a bottom. You did buy buy Texas Instruments and you did buy Visa. Again, these are your personal moves. After the break, we're going to get into the Joe T yes. moves, but Texas Instruments is interesting. Um, after earnings last week and then Visa. Well, I, Scott, it was, it, was, it was remarkable because I was sitting on set with you for, uh, for overtime and we heard the earnings of both these companies and there was such resiliency with Texas Instruments. So with Texas Instruments, I wanted to maintain semi-exposure, but I wanted to do it, as I said before, a little bit more defensive, a lower beta uh, mannerism. Texas Instruments, its beta is 1.06, and you still have the double-digit revenue growth. They returned 12%. The prior quarter was 17%. So I took a position there. As far as Visa, boy, that is just the stock that's been remarkable. I know others on the committee, uh, like Stephen Weiss and Josh Brown, have commented on it. The last quarter was fantastic. You're seeing relative outperformance year-to-date. It's down 5% versus the S&P, which is down about 19%. It recently cleared above all its critical moving averages. And the revenue growth is there as well. Prior quarter, 18% growth. The average over the last two years, 17%. Okay. As I said, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll get to the moves Joe T has made in the Joe T as he rebalances uh, that ETF. We'll get through those big changes. We're back from Denver in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. 
If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, Joe T, let's talk about the Joe T and the moves you've made, because oh, there are many. Uh, you added to consumer discretionary, right? So you've taken the weighting up to 7.3% from, let's call it four. You've added TJX, you added Lennar, DR Horton, and Home Depot. Interesting housing plays when housing is getting wrecked. Tell me about it. Well, both in the case of Lennar and DR uh, Horton, they score very strong on the quality metrics of debt to equity and return on equity. And Scott, the revenue growth is there. It's plus 20%. And the same can be said about Home Depot. The last quarter, the revenue growth was strong there as well. As it relates to TJX, that's purely uh, a play on the technical strength of the momentum over the last 12 months. You continue to go bigger in energy. Uh, you are overweight even more, uh, near 12% weighting now from near 10. You've added Hess, Energy Transfer, and Marathon Petroleum. Yes, another refiner in addition to Valero, the exposure to energy, I believe, uh, at 11.82% is in the right place given the fundamental issues that exist. The three names that I'm adding here, again, balance sheets are in quality shape and the momentum is behind them. Very happy to add to the energy positioning. You've added to materials significantly. Um, you're at 7% now. You've added Freeport. Uh, which you did recently, by the way, I believe personally uh, as well. I did. I think as we talked about at that time. Uh, Vulcan Materials, you've added an Albemarle. Yeah, it's, it's interesting in the material space that I saw such a significant increase. Uh, Corteva, it's an agriculture name uh, that has really the highest marks within the industrial uh, in the material sector when you're, you're studying the quality momentum strategy. Uh, so that adds to already owning Mosaic, Archer Daniels, Mid Midland, and John Deere, Albemarle, VMC, Freeport, McMoran. It completes increasing the exposure. And we liquidated uh, Newmont Mining. The exposure to gold now is basically at zero. That was a, a, a slight negative trade. You've uh, really increased your exposure to industrials. Uh, more than 12% from uh, versus the S&P of, of 8.3. Take me through that. So you're really going cyclical. Definitely going more cyclical uh, here, Joe. 
Def definitely, definitely going more defensive as well. Look, I, I think the only bull market you could really find in the market right now is, is volatility. So the market's going to a lot of different places and probably ending up nowhere. And I think it's about what your strategic approach is and where can you find relative outperformance. And within the industrials, if you think for a second, the industrial sector, I think, is down somewhere around 11 percent. But in the case of Cummings, Deere, IDEX, uh, CSGP, AME, Ameritech, these are all names that are actually outperforming the sector year to date. That's signaling something for you and very happy to take positions in each of those names when you have that relative outperformance in this type of environment. In addition to that, again, also, balance sheets for a lot of these companies are in quality shape. CSX, that's another name within the industrials that was added. So you reduced financials, and from the beginning of the year, we're talking about uh, nearly half of where the positioning was. Rather than, than give me the explanation on that, let's take some of this to the committee. So Stephanie Link, mm -hmm. um, added to energy, added to materials, added to industrials. What do you think of uh, what the, your committee member has done here? Well, I'm overweight all three of those sectors, and I have been all year. Um, I think that uh, industrials have been the most surprising, Scott, because I would have thought that they would have gotten more hurt from higher input costs, and in fact, they have better pricing power. So I totally agree. I agree with that. Materials, it, Joe mentioned Corteva. I've owned Corteva uh, for the last year and a half. Uh, it's a really wonderful management team. If you remember, and Joe will remember this, um, Dave Anderson, who was uh, the CFO of Honeywell, yep. is now the CFO at Corteva. And we know what he did at Honeywell, right, in terms of performance, it was outstanding. And I think that this company has a lot to offer in terms of in terms of cost cuts. So so I like, I mean, I like energy, I like financials, I like industrials, materials. I think the only place we disagree really is on the financial side. And I'm actually going the other way, as I mentioned uh, last uh, segment. Yeah. All right, Jim, wrap it up. What's your view of, of uh, the moves that Joe has made? Completely agree. Completely agree. That shouldn't be a surprise. I'm a very big believer in the real economy right now. Um, look, technology had a great run the last decade, but we're building things now. And to build things, you need to clear earth with industrials. You need to, you need to move aggregates on railroads. People are traveling. Uh, you need to build things with energy and materials. We're building things again. Uh, I totally agree with Joe. All right, appreciate it. We will take a quick break. Actually, let's get the headlines now from Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Scott, here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden will give a speech tonight on threats to democracy. The address is scheduled for 7 p.m. Eastern time and comes less than a week before the midterm elections. The White House is accusing North Korea of secretly shipping large amounts of artillery shells to Russia. A Biden administration spokesperson says the ammunition is being routed through the Middle East and North Africa to hide its ultimate destination. Kansas University has suspended vast Basketball coach Bill Self and his top assistant Curtis Townsend for four games. It's the latest move by the school following an FBI investigation into basketball corruption and recruiting violations. And the Washington Commanders may soon be up for sale. Owners Dan and Tanya Snyder say they've hired Bank of America to, quote, consider potential transactions. Snyder's ownership of the team has come under increased criticism after an investigation found a toxic workplace and prompted a $10 million fine. Forbes estimates the commanders are worth $5.6 billion. Halftime returns after this. What does it mean to be rich? 
Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. Live today from Denver, the Schwab Impact Conference here. We're less than 90 minutes from the Fed's latest decision on interest rates. And joining me now on sets, Kevin Gordon. He's the Senior Investment Research Manager at Charles Schwab. Thanks for having us here. Thanks, it's good to be here and good to see you. Welcome to Denver. Welcome to Impact. Yeah, all right. So, as I said, 90 minutes till it all goes down. Uh, do they extend or end the rally? That's the question I asked my committee. I'm going to ask it to you. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not sure how much it depends on the actual decision itself, probably more in the language as you've all been talking about today. Absolutely. We want to see what Powell's going to say about an eventual step down or whatever they're going to call it. I, I tend to think, actually, put more weight on the fact that we've got two CPI reports and two jobs reports in between now and December. Uh, so, you know, that's a lifetime of economic data, uh, you know, and right, anything can change. Right. And so I think that, you know, it'll be important to see what he says about financial conditions, whether they've eased a little bit too much and they have to, they would like to see them get a little bit tighter. Um, but I think any language around what the step down looks like, if it's just getting back down to 50, that's still pretty restrictive, much like you were discussing earlier with Steve. Um, that's not a pivot to rate cuts. It's certainly not dovish. Uh, so I think any of that softening language, anything around that, it's going to be important to watch. You, you say it's hard to embrace the rally. So you're not a believer in this bounce. As I said, I mean, it's a significant one, obviously. Yeah. Dow's up 13.5% since yeah. the, the mid October lows, and the other major averages have rallied in, in, in kind. Yeah, I mean, I get why they're happening because you have such extreme negative correlations with the dollar or with rates. But when, when you think about the fact that Fed funds pricing and what the market's expecting, that terminal rate still keeps going higher. Um, and that's very much the disconnect that we saw in the very strong rally that we had June through August when the market went up 17 uh, percent, cut short because Powell had thrown cold water on the idea that we were going to you know, experience anything close to a pivot. But yeah, I think until you start to see a material rolling over in rates and then also the terminal rate expectation, um, at the same time that we're getting you know, leading indicators not showing any sign of a trough, that mix to me is not very indicative that we're anywhere near sort of a, you know, a definitive trough. We may be in a bottoming process, but you know, moving sideways is very different than you know, embarking on a, on a new bull market. So what enables you to get more positive about the, the, you know, the environment that we're in? Is it a true pivot to, to actually cutting rates? Is 70 to 50 and then looking around for a while good enough, do you think? You know, we've never been in the camp that a pivot to cuts would be bullish because the only scenario that that would happen and would need to happen, especially when we're now in an environment of aggressive rate hikes, is significant deterioration in the economy and or the labor market. So I think that's off the table. I do think that if we start to ease because they're seeing easing and inflationary pressure, at the same time that economic growth is rebounding, you would have to see a definitive bottoming in things like home builder sentiment, ISM new orders, CEO confidence, all the confidence metrics like that. Um, once those turn and we get inflation easing, that's clearly the, you know, that's the rosy scenario. I'm not sure how you know, easy that's going to be to do. Uh, but, you know, we're, we'll have to see if those indicators turn at the same time that they're going to start seeing that pressure ease. It's not what we're seeing yet. You think we're in a sea change of value to growth or better yet of growth to value that, yeah. you know, last week was kind of the wake up call of, of what lies ahead for the, the growth trade versus where things are really going to work best in the, in the months, if not years ahead. I've got a couple of tried and true 
real value investors as part of our investment committee who are thinking along those lines that it's the cyclical so-called value real economy plays that are going to do better than the the fangs the microsofts and the googles etc well that's one of the themes that we've been uh, you know pretty excited about to see this change just because you know if you want to think about growth as the large cap growth fang names that dominated so much of the rally leading into the pandemic then yeah i mean we think that that dominance is fading you could see it evidence in the earnings reports you could see it in something like leadership from the energy sector on a rolling three, six, nine, 12 month basis, um, that just hasn't let up. And so every single time you get a downturn or a rally, energy seems to be that one that's emerging as a leader. And I think, yeah, if we're, if we're going into an era of shortages, whether it's in commodities or just energy in general, then yeah, that, that sort of acts as a permanent lift to the cyclical areas of the market. Not to say that tech or communication services have to materially underperform, it's just losing and shifting leadership from those areas back to something that would be a little bit more value oriented. Before, uh, I, before, we, before I let you go, just sort of the overall kind of messaging that's coming out of here. Um, it's a unique time that we're yeah. talking about the 60-40 portfolio, right? Um, because of the different environment we're in, is the message here, do you think, that that is intact? Or in fact, it's time to reassess what has worked for so long? Well, you know, I actually don't think that 60-40 was the, very much the base case. I think that a lot of equity exposure had gotten so outsized um, heading into the pandemic, maybe even during the pandemic. And I think the 60-40 question has come into question this year because of what's happened in the bond market. Of course. But we've had relative stability in the bond market, uh, you know, pre this year, pre-2022. So I think the question's always been there and how to diversify. But now, you know, there's a lot of income now in fixed income. So there's a lot of opportunities to go into that. And even on the equity side, if you're talking about something value versus growth, a lot of the unloved areas, like I had mentioned with energy, or even industrials you can extend out into materials, are starting to get some love. Uh, and you know, we see that sort of as a theme persisting over time. It's not going to happen overnight. But if the Fed wants to keep rates higher, if we eventually sort of trough and find an inflation floor that's not 2%, it's 25 or 3%, it's a very different backdrop than what we had going into this. Um, so you know, it's always been a question, I think, of how to diversify. But I think, you know, there's, there's now more opportunity to actually do something with that, given the, the massive shift in, in the rolling bear markets that we've had in right, several right, asset classes. Right. There, there actually is an alternative. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for it's the first time in yeah. what seems to be forever. Yeah. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Thanks, Thanks for being Scott. with us. Appreciate yeah, it. It's Kevin Gordon joining us uh, here today from Schwab. Still ahead, Boeing shares are flying high on the back of comments from its own analyst day. Jim and Steph, of course, own that stock, which means they'll talk about it next. All right, countdown to the Fed is on. We're still in the red across the board, as you see there. Boeing, however, is not. Held its analyst day today. Stock soaring. CEO Dave Calhoun saying Boeing will not need fresh equity for its restructuring and development plans. The company also expecting between 3 to $5 billion in free cash flow next year. Jim, Steph, you, you guys both own it. Jimmy, you go first. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll make this quick. The stock popped on those free cash flow numbers, including an estimate of $2.5 billion for this quarter. So the, the simple story here is we're not talking about whether Boeing is going to turn it around or not. They have turned it around. And it's a question of how fast do they grow from here. Uh, the production numbers that they are projecting for the 737 and the 787 next year were very appeasing to the street. So things really look on track here. I want to I save some airtime for Steffi, so I'll give it to her. Okay, I'm glad you did. I had to go to I had to go to Jim first, Steph, because I wanted him to be able to talk about this before Paramount, which is coming up. I wanted to let him get it all out here on Boeing. But you go ahead with uh, with with your review of, uh, of this Boeing news. Yeah, no, I mean clearly it's an upbeat analyst day seeing better volumes and they're also seeing easier supply chain issues which is very important and why deliveries are so important why do we care about that we care because uh, I think that's we need to, I think to we need to work on that audio let's uh let, let let's let's bounce out of that uh Steph we're having a problem with your audio we'll fix it uh, we'll take a quick break Santoli's going to join us with his midday word we're back uh, right after this All right, welcome back from Denver. Investors waiting on the Fed, of course. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. What, what are your thoughts here? Are, are we set up for a fall? You know, I don't think the market is necessarily looking uh, to get immediate gratification here, some kind of a green light, some kind of a mission accomplished. That's the good news, is that the market, I think, uh, is pretty realistic about the possibility of getting some vague signals of moderating pace of tightening. But, you know, the s and up 10 percent off of its lows. High yield bond spreads have come in quite a bit. I mean, from the June highs, more than one percentage point. That's good news in the sense that, you know, the market doesn't look like it's uh, on the brink of some kind of, a, of an accident. The bad news is the Fed looks at that and says, OK, I guess the market can handle uh, more of this. To me, the big key is is that are we going to come out of this press conference today with some sense that the ultimate destination is in sight? Uh, I keep talking about the fact that Fed officials have been describing this as front-loading the tightening, right? Getting ahead of it. Well, you're seven months in now. I think you front-loaded it, so where to next? Right, and we, I mean, the fact of the matter is we are closer to the destination, and the market's going to have to by you know, judge for yeah. itself by definition how it feels about that and, you know, if we're going to slow down, fine, and how much we may remain at what Steve Leisman put as cruising altitude moving forward here. Exactly. And, and how Powell describes current policy after this hike today, is it now solidly restrictive? He said it's going to have to stay restrictive for a while, but are we in that zone where he believes it's restraining uh, activity in general? All right, we'll see a little bit later after it all yep. goes down. That's Mike Santoli. Uh, with his midday word. All right, up next, trades on some of the day's big earnings movers. Halftime from Denver. It's back right after this. All right, let's go through some of these earnings movers. So, Stephanie Link, I think we fixed your audio, which is good. I'll come back to you, Estee Lauder. So, they cut their outlook. Shares are down big. It's a new 52-week low. What are you doing? Well, I mean, we talked about this yesterday on the show. Um, that I did not expect a good quarter at all. 
because they have a lot of exposure to China and China is closed. And so the quarter itself was actually fine. They actually beat on the sales line. Uh, but the guidance for organic growth of down 9 to 11 percent versus up 4 percent expected for next quarter is very disappointing. But the reasons are not as surprising at all. Destock in China and travel, right? So what was encouraging to me was you're seeing high single digit to upper di uh, double digit sorry, low double digit numbers in some of their core products, their core uh, franchises, which is Mac and Bobby Brown and uh, Jay Malone and all the, Joe Malone, all of those kinds of things. And so I don't think the business model is broken by any means. We just need China to reopen. I don't know when that's going to be, but this is a quality company and I'm going to stick with it. I might even buy more as, uh, as, it, as it settles here. All right, Jim, let's do it. Uh, Paramount, a new low in its own right. Uh, I don't know where you want to take it from here. You continually defend this thing, and uh, I feel like we have the same conversation yeah. over and over again. Yeah, we do. And uh, listen, I've obviously got a lot of egg on my face. I mean, I acknowledge it, Scott, but then the question looms, what do you do with the stock and why am I still in it? And the answer is I am going to stay in it. Um, the problem here is very simple. This is an environment, a rising interest rate environment, in which nobody wants to pay for a company that's investing in the future. Now, that investment, by the way, is paying off. First nine months of this year, they've added 11 million subscribers uh, to their streaming business. By the way, just by comparison, Netflix has only added a little over a million. Um, they have $3 billion yeah. of cash on the balance sheet. Nobody gives them credit for the fact that they raised money during that Archegos melt-up. They've got the money to make it through next year uh, and beyond, next year being peak losses on direct-to-consumer streaming. Look, they're, they're about one-third the size in streaming numbers as Netflix, but they're one-sixth of the enterprise value. That's a mismatch that will correct hey, in Paramount's favor. Quickly, if, if Berkshire Hathaway put a filing that said they were out of this name, I'm not suggesting that they are, I have no knowledge to say that they are whatever, but if that happened, if they threw in the towel on this, what would you do? Would it influence you at all? Well, it would make me feel even more like garbage than I do right now on the name. Um, you know, I think about that, Scott. Uh, how about if we just cross that bridge when we come to it? I mean, they're in it for now. I have to think they see <laughs> the right. same long-term business potential that I do. Yeah, this stock Maybe. makes me look like garbage. I know that. Maybe. I mean, they've pulled the ripcord on things before. Uh, that we maybe thought they never would. I'm thinking like IBM and, and the like. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll do final trades on the other side. All right, a Fed decision day tradition. Jeffrey Gunlock, Double Line CEO, joins me in overtime today from here in Denver, his first reaction to what the Fed does and most importantly, what Jay Powell says in his news conference. Let's do some final trades now. Before I let you go, Joe T, tell me about some other moves that you made that are pretty darn interesting. Scott, I learned a long time ago, the hardest trade is the right trade. To sell Alphabet and Joe T was difficult. But guess what? To sell Meta at $200 in April in Joe T was difficult. To sell Amazon at 134 in July was difficult. Joe T is an equal weighted strategy. I have to listen to that non-emotional rules-based strategy and apply it to my personal holdings. I've taken every holding that I have personally and I've made it equally weighted. What does that mean? That means, yes, I have trimmed Apple and I have trimmed Microsoft. Wow. All right. Uh, appreciate you updating on this and you, uh, updating us on that. 
uh, Joe. Let's get a final from uh, you, Jimmy. Yeah, for, well, it's why we have a portfolio. For every Paramount, there's a CVS and a Boeing. CVS had great earnings today, beat and raise. All right, good stuff. Steph? Caterpillar, great pricing, lower input costs, good uh, deliveries. I think this, these guys could do 18 to $20 in earnings power over the next couple of years. Okay. All right, good stuff. I'll see you with Gunlock in overtime. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.